You can grab a seat. And as you do, let me introduce you, one and all, ladies and gentlemen, to Mr. R. Kelly. You make me want to get you pregnant. Lay your body down and get you pregnant. You are pregnant. Now usually I lead a club with a girl who has a man. And take her to a hotel for just a one night stand. See, I'm a player, so I ain't trying to take her on no dates. Oh, man. Oh. When we listen to this song slash ballad... Uh, by our modern day poet uh, known as Mr. Robert Sylvester Kelly. Uh, when we hear these words, uh, it should bring maybe a lot of questions to our minds, right? It should make us start to wonder about the world that we live in and how it functions and what R. Kelly really thinks about women and how does that work, right? Like we're we're trying to almost comprehend, like what is he trying to say? And one of the things that I really love about this song, that one of the questions that really brings into my mind is what, what does he think sex is for, right? Like what, (laughs) what is he trying to accomplish uh, with sex? Because even by his own admission, he says, oh, you know, like sometimes when I find that girl in the club, like she's already got a man. And so we just go have a one night stand, no big deal. But when I meet that unbelievable booty girl, <laughs> who's also a cutie, I just can't stop thinking about that dog, right? Like, I can't, I can't get that out of my mind. And suddenly, uh, it seems as if there's this other level that he could take it to, right? It seems like uh, Mr. Kelly is a little divided. Like, he's like, well, sometimes it seems like sex is uh, just kind of for fun and stuff. But, but sometimes, right, that unbelievable booty girl, right, that, that one that Megan Trainor's always singing about, like, she, she's the one that I'm willing to take to the next level and get pregnant, lay down and get pregnant, right? Like that's, that seems to be in his mindset of what, what he's trying to accomplish. He sees that as the purpose of sex. And it's honestly a question that I think a lot of us have wondered, that a lot of us are maybe struggling with, that our society at large uh, answers a lot of different ways, which is how or what is the purpose of sex? Like what, what is it there for? What does it accomplish? Why? Why do we have sex? How do we manage, how do we deal with our sexuality? Uh, is it maybe sometimes just, uh, you know, is it for fun? Is it for baby making like, like Mr. Kelly? Is, is it for maybe to start a relationship, right? Is the purpose of sex to start a relationship or maybe uh, reinforce a pre-existing relationship? Or, or is it completely disconnected from relationships, you know, in general? Or, or is sex meant to kind of fill this physical appetite that we have? Is sex meant to uh, give us true fulfillment uh, in this world? Is sex just something to pass the time? What's the purpose of it? What's the end goal, right? What, what's the reason for sex? And we're all walking into this with different backgrounds, and we're all walking into this with different views, and, and we're all walking into this maybe with different answers to that question. And, and I think most tragically is a lot of times our backgrounds and our views, they have a lot of guilt mixed in, and they have uh, mistakes mixed in. And sometimes when we made those mistakes, we took that to a church, or we took that to a Christian, 
and that person just heaped more guilt on us or made us feel even worse or they condemned us and they shook their fist at us and they gave us kind of a scornful glance. Or maybe some of us, that was us on the church side of the table. Maybe some of us, we had friends or we knew of people at school or whatever that, that made these mistakes that uh, kind of slipped up in certain ways and so we shook our fist at them and condemned them, looked down on them. I mean, let me... Let me just say, before we even get into this passage, before we even like read one verse from this chapter, is, um, I mean, we don't have that right. We don't have that right to shake our fist at someone who's broken in ways that we're not. We don't have that right to condemn someone who's been caught in a mistake that we're just better at hiding. We don't have that right as believers. Why? Because if you're a Christian, you worship the God who loves to fix what's broken. You worship the God who provides forgiveness in the midst of rebellion. You worship the God who provides healing in the midst of pain. You worship the God who brings life in the midst of death. You worship the God who offers no condemnation to those who place their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And if that's your God, if that's who you're following, How dare you assume that it's okay for you to still shake that fist, still look down? Man, don't do it. And man, if you're here and that's where you're coming from, you've been burned in the past, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. And I would love to talk to you about that. We have leaders here tonight that would love to talk to you about that. Because that's not how our God operates. We worship a God who loves to restore, to renew, to redeem. And he does so all the time in regards to our sexuality. If God could move in to the lives of a guy named David, who didn't just commit sexual sin, didn't just commit adultery, in fact, he ramped it up to adultery slash murder, And God can move into that life and redeem that man and pull him out of that and show him the right path. And to the point where that guy is known for all of time as the one man who is after the Lord's own heart. I mean, if God can do that in that situation, how dare you try to find someone that you think is just beyond help? Doesn't happen. All semester, man, we've been, we've been studying the song of songs. We've been trying to understand, uh, wrap our minds around uh, what does God design for relationships. How did he design relationships to function? And what we've discovered is that songs in general uh, always have two major components. They always have a melody, right? The, the tune that carries, it. and there's always a message behind that melody that's being communicated. And what we've found is that God designed relationships in the exact same way, uh, that every single relationship has its own melody, the way it plays out, but there's always a message behind it, that there's always something bigger that's being presented through that relationship. And so we've been trying all semester to understand how do we as believers not just pursue great or fun or good relationships. Instead, how do we pursue godly relationships that sing his song over the noise of our world? How do we do that? How do we use our relationships as an opportunity to reflect the gospel? How do we use the melody of our relationships to present the message of God's gospel? How do we do that? And so all semester, we've been looking through uh, different stages of a relationship. 
We've been looking at uh, how do we reflect the Lord uh, in our attraction to one another? How do we reflect God and the gospel uh, in our pursuit of one another? How do we reflect God uh, as we enter into an actual romantic relationship that's maybe going towards marriage, right? How do we do those things? How do we move through those areas? How do we engage in those environments in a way that reflects the gospel above all else? And so this evening, what we're doing is we are taking that next step and we're looking at a couple who is married, right? They've been wed. And maybe, you know, maybe some of the other couples we've looked at uh, through the course of the book, they could also possibly be married at different times. But this group or this couple for sure is married. This couple, they have looked at each other and they said, I want to hunt foxes with you, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. They decided we're going to murder those creepy foxes. And that picture that I didn't bring back because it was just too much. Uh, but we, this couple, they've looked at each other, they said, we're going to do this. And so they made this commitment to one another. They've gotten married. And so in their marriage, they're now married and they're like, all right, we're married. And all of a sudden what we're going to look at in chapter four is their wedding night. And they are just pumped up, right? They're excited. And they're at this moment where they're finally ready to take this commitment and all these things and all these lessons that we've been talking about all, all semester. Man, they're at this moment where it's all kind of coming almost to a culmination. And they're about to have sex. Finally. And this couple, what we find in their interactions and in their, their words and their dialogue and their exchange, what we find is some principles or are some principles about sex. And what we find also is the purpose for sex. It's beautiful. As we walk through chapter four, we're going to pull out about five different principles. In other words, you know, the how, how sex was designed by the Lord. How did God design sex to function? And then what we'll find at the very end of four, very beginning of five, is why God designed sex. Not just a principle of sex, but a purpose for sex. Why? That's awesome. And it's so cool. And it reflects the gospel, which is incredible. Because you don't expect sex to do that. But it does. So we're in chapter four, though, verse one, and we're starting off and we see the man speaking and he's speaking to his bride and he says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Ah, your teeth, they're like a flock of shorn ewes, those are sheep, that have come up from the washing all of which bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Oh my goodness. What is he talking about? Again, you might remember as we've been walking through the semester, these people, they live in a different time, right? In a different age. And so their examples are a little bit strange, right? He keeps talking about doves, just like constantly the doves, right? Like I'm, I still don't get that. But he's talking about doves, he's talking about towers. Uh, what is he describing? And if we look at all these analogies and all these comparisons, uh, we wind up uh, with a picture kind of like this. Uh, <laughs> I know. I know. This... <laughs> This image was found uh, by the same intern who found that creepy fox. So don't look at his Google searches. Uh, but this, this is what we wind up with, right? We have this woman uh, with dove eyes and sheep mouth and neck thing and uh, breasts like fawns. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's a hoot. Uh, but we see 
well, we see that this guy is trying to describe the woman uh, in beautiful terms. This guy is trying to describe her uh, with things that he knows. He's trying to put basically all these emotions, all these feelings, all these positive uh, things that he wants to tell her. He's trying to put it into words. He's taking his deepest emotions and he's trying to express them. Uh, and it comes out a little weird, uh, but sweet. But sweet, right? And so when we see him using those, that terminology and speaking about her in such a way, what we find is the first principle of sex that we see that God designed for our sexual relationships is that it should be romantic, right? That there should be a level of romance involved. That this guy is lavishing praise upon this woman. He's seeing what's beautiful in her and he's trying to build on that beauty. Remember we talked about that weeks ago. That he's not looking at her and being like, well, I kind of wish you looked like this or like trying to make her fit into some little box that he's created. Instead, no, he sees what's beautiful in her and he builds upon that beauty. He says, oh my gosh, your neck, (laughs) stone, right? Try that. We'll see how it goes. Email me, let me know how it goes. But he's describing this woman and says these romantic terms. Uh, When my wife and I were... uh, heading towards marriage. We were engaged and we did premarital counseling here at Grace, which I highly recommend if you're here when you get engaged. It's super awesome. Uh, and we had this couple. It was great. We'd known them for years. Uh, and they were conducting our premarital counseling. So we met with them weekly and we eventually came to the sex week. Okay? And at the sex week, basically the rule was, uh, or just in our circumstance, uh, I, we split up. And so I met with the dad uh, for lunch. She's met with the mom for lunch. And so I met the dad actually here at church over in the fireside room across the street. And we sat down and he looked at me and I'm going to call him Jim. I'm just using a fake name. And Jim looked at me. He goes, Jacob, says, if there's one thing you need to know for marital sexual success, says is this, foreplay starts in the kitchen. <laughs> I was like, Jim, TMI, man. <laughs> Whoa, man. I've had meals at your house. What are you talking about? Right? That's, that's terrible. Uh, and I asked him, I legitimately asked him, like, what are you saying? And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, no, 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 no. He says, you don't understand. He says, look, here's the thing. He's like, uh, you know, Mary, Mary uh, loves a clean kitchen. She loves a clean, orderly home, especially in the kitchen. He says, he says anytime that I'm, you know, we're aiming for that and I'm, you know, kind of steering us towards that sexual encounter... I have to make sure that our kitchen is clean. So that's what I do. I move in there and I make sure that the appliances are put away, that the plates and cups and everything are, are done away with, that there's no dirty dishes out. And I make sure that area is clean because I know that that frees her up mentally. I know that she loves that and she's not going to be worried about it. So there's just a way that I can move and act and be romantic, honestly, uh, to lead us towards that moment. And that's, man, that's, that's the way it works. You are married to a holistic being who has a lot of different needs and a lot of different desires. And so there needs to be romance involved. There there are words being spoken. There are actions that need to be taken as you move towards one another sexually. There's romance involved, affirmation, uh, praises, poems, clean cups. It's all part of the game, man. There's romance in our relationships, in our sexuality. God has designed it to be romantic. God has also designed it to be gentle. Uh, the man starts talking. He says, oh, your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away, 
to the mountain of myrrh, the hill of frankincense. Why? Why? Her breasts like deer. That's so strange. And it's because, I, I think really it's because he's communicating this idea of gentleness, of, of caution, of care. You approach a baby deer like, oh, hey, baby deer. You know, like, hey, baby deer. Like, you're not running after it. He doesn't describe it as, oh, you know, this. He doesn't say like, oh, you're, uh, they're like lions to be hunted and slaughtered. No, he says, no, I'm, I'm going to say it. Uh, I'm going to talk about it with gentleness, uh, with, with caution. Made me think of this morning, uh, there's a song, another ballad of our generation. Not by R. Kelly, sadly, although now <laughs> he's all I want to listen to. Uh, but this is another song, kind of big right now. Maroon 5 uh, had a song called Animals. Okay? And this song has been on iTunes and Spotify for a while. Uh, but it's basically talking about this relationship. And it's got a really weird music video. That you should, uh. But the guy is talking. He's like, okay. Uh, and he's describing this relationship. And the opening lines, okay? Ready? The opening <laughs> lines from this song, Animals, Maroon 5. Baby, I'm praying on you tonight. Hunt you down, eat you alive. Just like animals, animals, like animals, moles. Maybe you think that you can hide. I can smell your scent for miles. Just like animals, animals, like animals, moles. <laughs> what in the world? We as a society, we as a culture, man, honestly, this is not the approach we take. We see this other person, this object of our desire, of our sexual desire, as something to be accomplished, as a prize to be won, as an animal to be, to be hunted down, because you can smell it for miles, and don't you try to hide, or else that Maroon 5 guy with the really high voice is going to smell you or whatever. Like, that's, that's what we see. But in Song of Songs, it's completely different. God has not designed our sex to be this battle. It's designed to be gentle, gentleness, caution. This guy's walking into this and he's affirming to the woman, honestly, both sides, affirming to one another, you're safe, you're secure, you're special. That's what we see here from both sides, a gentleness. But they keep going. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There's no flaw in you. He says, come with me from Lebanon. My bride, come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. He says, you are so beautiful. You are altogether beautiful. There is no flaw to be found in you. What we see in this moment is him affirming the woman. What we see in God's design for sexuality is that it should be affirming, that our sexuality should be giving life to the other person. Both sides affirming the other person, completely positive. There is no room for negativity when it comes to your spouse's body. And hear me that say that right now. There is no room for negativity when it comes to your spouse's body. Guys and girls, you look upon this person and you see a child of God. You see a beautiful creation. You see no flaws. Why? That's part of the romance. That's part of the security. That's part of the gentleness. You're affirming that person. 
If you try to give it that weird little glance or you make that comment when you're out with friends, you're going to cause so much pain, so much destruction. People are self-critical enough without their spouse adding fuel to that fire. You're affirming. God has designed our sexuality to be affirming. That's one of the reasons we fight so hard against pornography. One of the many reasons we fight against pornography. Because it creates these expectations and these ideas. And it twists men and women's minds when they watch that video or see those images or read those words on the page. And it twists their brain to where they're no longer stirred by flesh and blood the way that they're supposed to be. They no longer see that beauty in front of them because they're comparing it to something that's fiction. We're affirming in our sexuality. The guy keeps going and says, you've captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, the fragrance of your oils than any spice. A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. The man is describing this woman, talking about how beautiful and incredible this woman. He's using all of his senses. He's describing uh, her, her, the way that she looks, the way that she smells, We read a minute ago the way that she tastes, right? There's honey under your tongue. How do you know that? Well, not French kissing, Hebrew kissing. That's what we see there. How does he know what's under her tongue? Well, he's getting there. He's in that area. And so he says, oh, it tastes sweeter than honey. He's describing all of this experience that they have with one another. Guy and girl, they're experiencing one another on every possible level. Our sex has been designed to be sensual. God has designed our sex to be sensual. There's no other activity that takes you out of time that occupies every sense like sex. Nothing. You're like, well, I lose track of time playing volleyball because it's really fun. Let me tell you, I've played volleyball. (laughs) Sex is way better. (laughs) Just trust me. It's different. Man, it's different. God has designed our sexuality to be so sensual. Why? Because it's a way that we can take our deepest emotions, our deepest feelings, and we don't just try to put it on a page. We don't just try to like say it. Instead, we get to put our deepest emotions into action. That's beautiful. So it's sensual. God has designed our sex to be sensual. They keep going. When the man describes all of these things, he finishes out a few different verses comparing the woman to a garden, talking about these uh, flowers in bloom and all these things. He says, you're you're like a garden. You're a garden, garden, garden. And so the woman, she hears all these things, right? She hears the entire chapter, his description, where he started at the top of her head, worked his way down, describing all of her beauty, where he's creating all the sense of safety, where he's affirming all these things about her. He's being gentle in that moment uh, when he's talking about her in all these sensual ways. She hears all of that. She experiences, she uh, receives all of that romance. And then what does she do? She responds with this. She says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. He brings romance 
and she brings responsiveness. God has designed our sex to be responsive on both sides, both sides. In this case, right, we see specifically the man speaking and then the woman responding. It works both ways. Through the whole book, we've been seeing the couple going back and forth, mutual movement, mutual initiation. Works the same way in our sex. If you, let's say your spouse and you, man, you love playing Scrabble, right? Man. That's where it's at, Scrabble. And so you and your spouse are like, man, let's, let's play Scrabble. And the, your spouse is like, okay, that's great. And you play Scrabble. And then you do it like the next day and the next week and whatever. And you dis- discover, though, over time uh, that it's just you that keeps bringing up Scrabble. The other person, they're, they're willing to play Scrabble, uh, but they're never initiating Scrabble. And so you would do that for a while. And after, I'm telling you, after probably a few months or so, you'd be like, okay, this is getting a little weird. Right? Like, I, I don't know, like, do you really want to play Scrabble? Like... When I scored that triple word score the other day, like you seem kind of excited, but not that excited. Like what's going on with our Scrabble relationship? And there's this, it's just the way that it works, right? If there is any activity, anything, but especially with our sexuality, if there's anything like our sex that needs, I mean, it needs that mutual movement, that mutual initiation. It can't just be one side all the time, hammering in, hammering in, hammering in. That's weird. It gets weird. You don't want that. There should be romance on both sides. There should be responsiveness on both sides. Mutual excitement. So he shows up at the garden. We're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And then the curtains close. Okay, that's basically what happens. We see all of chapter four, this big lead up, and then the curtains close at the end of four. They, you know, play Scrabble. And then the curtains open back up. Chapter five. The man speaks again. He says, I came to my garden. My sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh with my spice and I ate my honeycomb with my honey and I drank my wine with my milk. Right? The guy is speaking suddenly just, over, just talking about what? He's talking about these things that he's accomplished. He's talking about uh, these things that he possesses now. There's a huge change in his wording, in his uh, pronouns. When you look at the way that he's describing the situation, we just walked through chapter four where he's like, oh, your, your neck is like a tower and your head is like, goats and oh my goodness and he's describing this woman you 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 your 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 and all of a sudden what does he turn into right here my my this is my my milk my mer, my honeycomb right this is mine my 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 he's those seagulls from finding nemo right my my i don't remember what they say but he says like they're mine it's all mine it's all mine and he's not speaking this uh, in some sort of you know weird uh, misogynistic way he's not saying like i own i planted my flag on this moon right like this isn't Uh, some sort of possessive description. Instead, what he's saying when he's talking about this woman, he's not just saying, I own you. He's saying, I am you. Like we are now one. We've merged. We have now become one flesh, one person. This is my body. What we see in this moment and what we see through all of scripture is the fact that sex Our sexuality, our sex has been designed by God to create unity. The purpose for our sex is to create unity. We see this in our scripture. We see this in our society. We look out across our culture and we see this in our biggest love stories. There's always a sense of, man, there's this new unity, this new oneness that's created by sex. That's why in every single famous romantic story that we have, we're always rooting for the couple to have sex. We're always excited about for them to have sex. 
We're like, oh my gosh, when are they going to have sex, right? We always, even as people that are like, well, they should probably wait until they're married. We still find ourselves rooting for that couple to have sex. We look at the story like the notebook. And when we see uh, the mutual birds, right? And we find them just in this big romance. And they're like, oh, let's go to carnivals and play in water and... If you're a bird, I'm a bird, and that's cool, or whatever. And so then they're talking back and forth. The whole time, we're like, oh my gosh, when's this going to happen? And sure enough, one day, they're in that old poopy house, and they have sex. And we're like, yay! And we're so excited. We're so excited. uh, Because they finally had sex. Why? Why do we as a society recognize that as a wonderful time? It's because we see that unity. We see that bond. We're like, oh my gosh, now the relationship, it, it means so much more. Because they've had sex. We see it in the great romances like The Notebook. We see it in great romances like The Lion King. Go with me. Simba and Nala, childhood friends, running and playing, and they get to know each other, and it's so great. Uh, But then Simba goes away, and he's hanging out with the pig guy and the uh, other guy, and they're just hanging out, and he grows up, right? And Timon and Pumbaa are are hanging out with them, and all of a sudden, Nala shows back up. He's like, oh my gosh, who's this person? They kind of wrestle a little bit. And then he's like, oh, Nala? She's like, Simba? And they're so excited. And then Timon and Boomer are like, oh, let's sing. Good love. And so they start singing about love. And we see them move through the jungle until we get to this moment. Where Nala is just looking up at him with her come hither eyes. Those, those smoky lioness eyelashes. And you do not now want to know how incredibly easy it was for me to find this exact screenshot because everyone knows exactly what's happening in this moment. Simba and Nala, they're probably taking the relationship to the next level. Okay, that's what's happening. That's what happens when you lay in grass with a lion. That's just the way it goes. And so all of a sudden we see this couple and man, they they move and they, they have sex and suddenly there's this new sense of unity found. There's a brand new, uh, almost facet to their relationship. Our society sees the unity created by sex. And yet still, sometimes we try to deny it, right? Our culture at large, we try to deny that. We're like, no, you can just have sex with these people and those people. It doesn't matter. You can just disconnect yourself from that. And it doesn't matter. And that's great that we can say that and try to believe it. But if that's the case, If that's really what we believe, why do we as a society still see a difference between a husband and a wife waking up next to one another after a night of sex or love or whatever? Why do we see a difference between that moment and then waking up next to a complete stranger after a one-night stand? Why is there a difference there? Because we realize now there's, there's something more. That's why we still, you know, somewhat jokingly talk about that walk of shame. That next morning, you got to go home in your, your normal clothes. Or maybe it was just Halloween, so you're going home in a costume. There's a picture going around of some guy walking down the street in like a pizza slice outfit. And everyone's like, oh, stupid. Right? And everyone's like, that's... That's dumb, right? But why? Why? If we really truly believe that sex is, has no connection, that there's no uh, connection to relationships, then why is there this joking shame? Or why is there a difference? Man, there's, there's a difference. And we see it, and it's still there, because no matter what we say, no matter how often we try to convince ourselves, like, no, it's okay, we can disconnect sex, you can't. You can't. You can't do it. And what we're finding 
is not only in our society are we recognizing that, we're finding that in pure science, in our brain chemistry. The more that we understand about the mind, the more we are recognizing that there is a unity created through sex. There's a chemical in your brain called dopamine. Okay, and dopamine is uh, the stuff that gets released. It's the reward in your brain when you take a risk. So if you go bungee diving or bungee jumping, skydiving, uh, you know, if you like walk on the grass outside the MSC, like just a little bit, and like no one sees, be like, <laughs> all right. If you do that. Dopamine, that's what's firing off in your brain, okay? And so that dopamine, what we've discovered as we're mapping people's brains and seeing how it works, what we're finding is that having sex, engaging in sexual activity, is one of the strongest transmitters for dopamine. One of the absolute strongest transmitters. Your brain is wired for sex. And what's crazy is that it's more than just a reward, right? When you have sex with someone, it's not just like a boom, boom, woohoo. Like, it's not just an excitement. There's also, uh, in both men and women, primarily, uh, especially in women, uh, oxytocin. Another chemical that gets released that we call uh, the uh, bonding chemical. It's literally like the nickname. It's the bonding chemical. And it's released in a woman's brain on four different occasions in her life. It gets released uh, when she engages in intimate touch Uh, when she has sex, uh, when she starts labor, and when she nurses a baby. And what we realize about oxytocin is that it creates a bond. It's a chemical that helps your brain bond with your lover or your baby. That's what it does. Pure chemistry. Guys have it some, uh, but more uh, specifically for men, they have a thing called vasopressin. Again, it's present in both genders, but especially in men, vasopressin is what we've nicknamed the monogamy molecule. Very similar to oxytocin. Basically, a guy, uh, when he has sex, this vasopressin stuff goes like boom, 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 and it's firing off and it's moving around, and it's basically, it moves from synapse to synapse and all this stuff, and it makes him bond and connect with the person that he's having sex with. It also, this is, crazy, this is a little bit newer, they've discovered that vasopressin also activates in the guy's mind when he interacts with like, his baby, when he holds his child, interacts with his young kid. Vasopressin poof, 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 fires off. It helps form long-lasting bonds. Those are from purely secular scientific journals. We are finding that our brains, man, we are hardwired to create unity when we have sex. Sex brings about a new unity with that other person, which shouldn't shock us because we've been reading it in our scriptures for thousands of years. Christ talking to Pharisees and his disciples, talking mainly about uh, why divorce is wrong. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Christ says there is an incredible unity created through Marriage through sex. You've become one flesh. Don't try to separate that. We see Paul talking to the Ephesians, talking about how husbands should be loving and kind and and, uh, taking care of their wives. And he says, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because 
We are members of his body. In other words, because the church is his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says, guys, you got to take care of your wives because you're one flesh. You're one body. When you leave your parents and hold fast to one another, essentially get married to one another, you become one flesh. When you consummate that marriage by having sex, you become one flesh. Unity is the purpose of sex. Why? Why? Genesis 2, what we keep seeing quoted. God looks at all creation. He made all the world and all creation. And he, he looks down. And he's like, this is good. Clouds are good. Mountains are good. Ant eaters are awesome. Uh, and over here, though, I see man and he's alone. And that's not good. It's the one thing he's like, that's not good. And so he says, I've got to make for man someone to walk alongside of him. I've got to create a helper. I've got to help. I've got to create someone who can uh, walk down that road with man, keep him company. And so he takes the rib, or sorry, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of Man, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why is unity the purpose of sex? Why do we see that in our society, in our science, in our scripture? Why do we see it over and over and over again? It's because we're meant to be unified. We're meant to be united. That's how we are originally designed to relate to one another. She was bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. She was taken out of man. They were one flesh, made into two flesh, that one day will become one flesh. It's restorative. It's going back to how it should be. What we find is that God did not just create sex as a, a physical uh, appetite or a physical action. We see that God has created sex to be a physical and emotional and spiritual act that, that binds two people together, that creates one where there was two. What we see is that God has used sex to restore humanity back to its original relationship with one another. And that's beautiful. That's amazing. That's so poetic that God accomplishes this through sex. That, that having sex, it's not just taking your relationship to the next level, right? It's not just like going to this next step of the relationship. In fact, sex is actually moving back to the original design for relationships. And I'm telling you, if we see this if we grab a hold of this idea, if we see sex as a picture of redemption, as a picture of restoration, if we hold this high view of sexuality that belongs between a man and a woman in marriage, if we really hold to this, if we really see it for what it is, our society will notice, our culture will notice And when we hold on to this view and we proclaim this truth to the world around us that's still just trying their best to figure out sex and haven't, right? Look at sex and how it's used in our world. It's not working. 
if we hold to this view, it becomes another opportunity to reflect the gospel. Why? Sex is the restoration of humanity back into the correct relationship, the original relationship it has with one another. What did Christ do? Why did Christ step out of heaven and onto earth? Why did he live that life that was perfect, die the death that we deserved? Why did he rise again three days later to prove victory over sin and over death? Why did he do that? Why is he coming back one day in our future? Why did he do all of those things? Why did he suffer? Why was he broken on our behalf? Was it to take us to this next level of existence, to show us this new thing that no one ever knew about before? No. Why did Christ step out of heaven and onto earth? It was to take us back to our original standing in relationship with God. Christ's action on this earth was for restoration. It was to restore humanity back into proper relationship with God, the way that we were originally designed to be. And sex is the exact same thing. And that's beautiful. And that's why tonight I really wanted us to take communion because it's another picture of this restorative process because communion in and of itself is a beautiful symbol, a beautiful picture, a beautiful reminder of what Christ has done. We break bread because it shows how Christ himself was broken. We drink juice or wine because it shows the blood that that Christ spilled on our behalf. And we consume it, man, we eat it because we know that if I put my trust in Christ, if I put my faith in who he is and what he's done, then I am now a partaker of that same death and I'm a partaker of that same resurrection, that I am now a child of God, that I am restored into the proper relationship with him. So man, as we enter into a little bit more worship, as we move and as uh, we're gonna have some leaders are gonna move uh, through your rows and kind of direct you and let you know when to head back uh, to take communion behind you at some different booths, Man, as we do that, I just want to encourage you to be thinking about that relationship with God. Right? Be thinking about, man, if, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you don't have a relationship with God, please take this time to think about that. Please take this time to come talk to me about that. I'll be in the back praying for you. There'll be a couple of other leaders with me in the back praying for you. Come talk to us. If you feel like, no, nah, like I've got this stuff that piled up, man, like maybe even specifically with your sexuality, like there, there's just stuff in my life that I can't shake. There's a relationship I'm in right now that I just, I don't want to get out of it. I don't think God would approve of it. That's okay. Man, God provides forgiveness, even in our failure. God is calling you to believe before he calls you to behave Man, I care so much more about where you're putting your faith and your trust way more than where you're spending your time or what you're doing. You don't get your act together and then come to God. You come to God. He works on you. If you have put your trust in Christ, if you do have a relationship with the Lord, take this time as an opportunity to thank him for that. Take this time as an opportunity to maybe talk to him. Confess maybe where you have stepped off of this path. Ask him to to guide you back. 
Ask the Lord to help you feel that forgiveness that he's already given you. Help him or ask him to help you remember that Christ died for all of your sins. No matter how dark or depressing or whatever you think, man, Christ died for that. You don't have to worry about it. So as we go into this time, let's, let's just start off by praying. God, we, we thank you that you have accomplished so much. That God, that these things, that uh, the way that we handle our sexuality, that God, the way that we handle our relationships in general, that God, the, the way that we gain a relationship with you, Lord, we thank you that none of that is up to us. That God, instead, we can rest in your strength and your power. God, in your name. If you would, take a moment right now and just ask the Lord to, to guide your thoughts during this time as we, as you maybe sing, as maybe you're just quiet, as maybe you stand or maybe you just sit. Ask the Lord to take this time and steer your thoughts towards him on some level. Maybe ask him to show you where you are forgetting the beauty of the gospel, where you're forgetting that you've been restored to relationship with him, where maybe you're letting guilt just tear you down, where maybe you're just allowing yourself to run off the path, ignoring the conviction from the Spirit. Whichever direction you go, just ask the Lord right now to put your thoughts on him.